Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with leading experts in the field. Uh, with us today is Michael Farker. He's a lecturer in Middle East politics at King's College, London, and he's the author of a new book from Stanford University Press called Circuits of Faith, Migration, Education, and the Wahhabi Mission. Uh, Michael, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me on. So this was really one of my favorite books of last year. It's a really detailed, uh, really interesting account of the history of the Islamic University of Medina um, in Saudi Arabia. So tell us a little bit about the Islamic University. What made you want to study this? And what did you think that existing accounts of it were getting wrong or missing? Sure. So, I mean, this book's been a long time in the making. I started out um, on this project back in 2009. And I guess at that time there were there were all sorts of people, both in the academic literature and also um, obviously journalists and people in the public sphere, speaking about this idea that Saudi Arabia had, had for a long time been um, been involved in this project, had been investing um, oil money in particular in this project of exporting Wahhabism, was the phrase that was often used. Um, and there were obviously suggestions, and, and not always ill-founded suggestions, that this had fed into... Um, the rise of a very um, morally conservative Salafi understanding of Islam um, in lots of contexts around the world, and that that had, that had um, in, in turn there, then kind of fed into um, dynamics of sectarianism and intolerance and uh, um, communal conflict and, and perhaps even violence in some contexts. Um, so there was this kind of debate already going on. Um, and there were some academic studies that had begun to, to shed light on, on kind of parts of this picture, but my feeling was that um, more often than not, what you really saw were were just kind of passing references, were, were kind of nods to the idea that this dynamic um, was underway, um, but that you didn't tend to get a great deal of, um, um, on the one hand, didn't tend to get a great deal of empirical detail about, about how this was playing out. Um, and so you didn't really come away with a strong sense um, of, of how this was supposed to have happened, through what um, channels it was supposed to have played out and what the effects um, were supposed to have been. Um, but then secondly, my feeling was that there was that there was room for a lot more attention to some more theoretical questions. So um, questions about what it really means in practice to um, to kind of uh, export a particular cultural framework like Wahhabism to kind of pick it up and move it to another location and what that really looks like in practice. Um, and questions about how ideas, religious ideas, um, can, can perhaps transform as they cross borders and perhaps can be, can be put to new uses in new contexts. So was the idea that, uh, that they were transmitting this conservative brand of Salafism, was it wrong? I don't think it was wrong. The, uh, I certainly don't think it was wrong to say that Saudi Arabia has been engaged in a project of, of promoting Salafism around the world. Um, I guess what the book takes issue with is the idea that this just involves a straightforward ex uh, process of export. Um, what the book takes issue with is, is the idea that it's just this kind of um, relatively linear, one-way dynamic in that sense. One of the things which was so interesting about the book, about the history of the Islamic University, is how it actually changes over time. And, and you, you pay close attention to the, the syllabus, to the different pedagogical methods. Um, uh, there's a, a wonderful part in there about the, uh, the resistance to modern forms of education as a form of neo-imperialism. What did you see about the way they were teaching Islam which struck you as particularly interesting or particularly important? 
Well, I mean, it's certainly the case that from the start, this was um, very clearly a, a, a Salafi, so Wahhabi, and in that sense, more broadly, Salafi um, missionary project. So the syllabuses, um, right from the early stages, were very clearly oriented in that direction, um, particularly in areas of creed, for example. Um, what, what was interesting, though, is that once you get beyond those core areas, that kind of core part of the of the religious mission that was being exerted here, um, you start to see somewhat more diversity in the syllabuses, um, but also that the syllabuses change over time. And I think that had partly to do with the fact that this was a project that brought in scholars not only from across Saudi Arabia, but from Egypt, from South Asia um, and beyond to, to staff it from the, from the 1960s onwards. Um, but also that it was a project that sought to appeal to wider um, to a wider student body um, than had historically been the case in, in Wahhabi educational circles. Um, and I think there's evidence that that, to some extent, may have, may have shaped how the syllabuses themselves actually changed over time. They begin teaching uh, foreign languages besides Arabic, for example. For a period, there was an effort to do this. Um, that, that was something that had been um, historically controversial in the Arabian Peninsula, and so it was quite novel that the university was seeking to do that in the early years. Um, in the longer term, that didn't particularly become kind of a central part of what it was doing. Let's talk about all those different faculty who were coming in and contributing. Uh, what kinds of ideas were the South Asians and Syrians and Egyptians bringing to this kind of pure bastion of Wahhabi Salafism? Well, so I mean, there are certainly very direct ways in which you can see um, those who were coming from abroad um, seeming to influence syllabuses. So it was the case that the university from the 1960s, and then especially as it expanded from the 1970s onwards, um, was bringing in um, large numbers of people from, um, from Egypt, from Sudan, from Syria, from across the Middle East, but then also from South Asia. Um, some of these people, some of the most prominent of these people, um, were associated with Salafi movements like the Ahle Hadith in, in South Asia, um, or, or Ansar al-Sunnah in, in Egypt. And then you also had some people who were who were coming from um, who were Muslim brothers who were coming from that background, um, and so you see works turning up on the syllabuses like um, works by Muhammad Qutb and, and these kinds of things, which suggest that um, some of those influences were were playing out quite directly. But I spoke before about the extent to which the syllabuses seem to evolve over, over time, and one thing that you see in this context um, is that the university starts teaching Islamic law in ways that. Um, move away from what had been a kind of long-standing emphasis on Hanbali law um, within Wahhabism and move towards a more um, comparative approach to the law, which was not out of sync with, um, with um, ideals that had historically been associated with Wahhabism, but in practice um, was, was kind of a distinctive shift. And there's also evidence that it was um, partly perhaps scholars coming from abroad who were, who were shaping that shift to some extent. How did those changes track with uh, the practice or, or, or the teaching of Islam outside of the university in Saudi Arabia? Was there any kind of uh, a, a divide opening up? Well, and so that is why I was partly caveating the idea that, um, that shifts that you see in syllabuses at the university were, um, were solely being driven by the fact that it was bringing in this kind of eclectic body of people from abroad. Um, because the shift that you see um, in the syllabuses here, away from 
um, Hanbali substantive law towards a more um, comparative approach to the law that, that um, draws um, in a more inclusive way on, the, um, on all of the major Sunni law schools was something that was not only happening at the Islamic University, this is also something um, that we know happened um, in the course of the 20th century in Saudi Arabia more generally. So in that sense, this wasn't um, unique, but when one digs down into the sources, there is um, a certain amount of evidence that this was, um, in this particular context, being driven by um, by this, this fact of bringing in a diversity of scholars and also by the fact of seeking to... Um, uh, seeking to educate students who were coming from this whole variety of different backgrounds themselves. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the questions that this book opens up is, um, or, or kind of um, leaves on the table for, for others to engage with, um, is how those dynamics were playing out more broadly in Saudi Arabia, um, and how that perhaps related to the fact that Saudi Arabia in this period becoming more integrated with the wider Muslim world, as, as we see going on in microcosm in this particular context. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the students and, uh, you know, roughly how many people pass through the Islamic University of Medina over the years and what happen what do they learn there? What happens when they go back to their host countries? Sure. So, I mean, in the early days, this was a, was a very small project. So this was founded in um, 1961 um, and early on was very, very small. Um, over time, I mean, if you track the budgets, for example, of the university year on year, um, it was certainly the case that as the oil boom hit in the early 1970s, uh, the, the scale of this project um, really kind of rocketed. Um, and so by the early 2000s, you have um, tens of thousands of people who, who've passed through the university. Um, and they're coming from all sorts of different backgrounds. So very early on, um, there does seem to be an emphasis on people coming from Arabic-speaking countries um, and I would, I mean, this is speculative, but I would um, assume that this was perhaps partly to do with the fact that the university was employing people from Arabic-speaking countries um, and that they were perhaps using their networks to, to recruit students. Um, but it doesn't take long from, those, from that early period that you start to see um, the reach of recruitment of students really opening up um, vastly um, and students coming from, from all across um, the, the Muslim world. And over time, it becomes a fairly high prestige degree. I mean, I guess these things are relative, and and um, depending on where people are coming from, it perhaps um, has has different clout and different kinds of clout depending on how you're seeking to to use it, what what kinds of employment you're seeking to move into afterwards, for example. Um, but I mean, obviously, the one of the major features of this university is that the education there is is free. So so all students who are coming. Um, are having essentially everything paid for, so um, both tuition fees and, and transport to Medina um, and money for, for books and for clothing and that kind of thing. Um, so this is obviously a major draw, is that um, um, kind of regardless of the, of the prestige of the degree afterwards, it's, it's essentially a, a free degree um, in many cases for people who wouldn't necessarily have access to that otherwise. No. You mention in the book a lot about how this was explicitly a missionary mission, so it wasn't purely about uh, Islamic education for its own sake. What did that mean in practice? Well, so I mean, it was a missionary um, project in the sense that um, what comes through quite clearly when you read um, some of the, I mean, even texts including in, included in university prospectuses um, and in those kinds of contexts, um, that right from the start, this was understood as a project that was um, not only to to be geared towards spreading kind of Islamic knowledge in a general sense, 
um, but that was to be oriented towards um, what was understood to be a situation where the the, the kind of global community of, of believers had um, had in many ways become kind of corrupted and had steered away from um, what was understood in this context to be kind of correct Islam, Islam correctly understood. Um, and so it was a missionary project in the sense that it was very much geared towards um, addressing that perceived problem um, and promoting um, the, the Salafi conception of Islam that in this context was understood to be to be correct. So when, when you were working on the book, did you get a good sense then of what the graduates at the Islamic University were doing when they went back home? Did they actually spread the Salafi version of Islam or did they basically go on to do other sorts of things? Sure. So I think there's definitely an effort to get at this in the book. I mean, um, it's certainly, I think I would, would defy anyone to be able to do kind of a, a broad-based study that would really give us a, um, a very kind of clear picture of the proportions of students who went on to, um, to, to pursue different kinds of projects afterwards. Um, but what one can do is to speak with um, as many graduates as possible and, and begin to get a sense from, from their accounts of, of how um, this can kind of feature in people's trajectories and, and the kinds of things that, that they as individuals have gone on to do afterwards. Um, and so I was speaking with graduates, um, especially in the UK, and that included both British Muslims who had gone to Medina to study to study in this institution, and also people from other backgrounds, from South Asian backgrounds, from from West African backgrounds, who um, had gone through Medina and had then ended up in the UK afterwards. Um, and I mean, what comes through in these in in the kinds of accounts that you hear from people is is the, is the degree of diversity that's at stake here. So it's certainly not the case, um, no matter no matter what the kind of the intentions of the project in the first place. It's certainly not the case that all of these students pass through Medina and then go on to engage in kind of full-time missionary activity afterwards. Um, and it's certainly not the case that all of them even aspire to that. So the kinds of people that I was speaking with, um, some of them were engaged in those kinds of activities, um, but many would speak about just the, the fact that after graduating, graduating from this institution, their priorities inevitably became providing for themselves and their families. Um, and that, that took them into all kinds of different employment, um, white-collar employment, blue-collar employment, which may or may not leave them room to be engaged in religious activities on the side. So let's go back to the original question then, the original framing of this uh, conversation, which is about the relationship between the Islamic University and these ideas that Saudi Arabia was promoting this uh, Salafism or even extremism and that this was responsible for changes around the region. After you spent all this time uh, and you know researching this and, and coming up with uh, all these different uh, conclusions, what would you say, kind of a short answer to the people who still believe that that's the case? Sure, well, I'll try to keep it short. Um, it's, a, it's a complicated question and I'll try to keep it short. But I mean, the, the argument that the book makes um, is that it's a more useful way of thinking about this. Um, it's not so much that this university is exporting Wahhabism in a very straightforward sense. Um, but that these kinds of projects um, that, that the Saudi political establishment has backed um, through the country's religious establishment, um, what they really consist in is kind of um, injecting resources into what I would think of as a kind of a transnational religious economy. Um, so that includes the obvious um, material resources, so just straightforward money. 
um, but also symbolic resources, so so knowledge, qualifications, these kinds of things. And that it definitely is the case um, that the effort to do that has kind of fed into the, the flourishing of Salafi currents in, in contexts around the world. But that what one can get at by thinking about things in that way is that um, how those resources end up being used um, really depends on the kinds of decisions that are made by the whole array of actors who are involved in these kinds of projects. So in this case, particularly students um, who may end up using um, the status that they acquire from their education in Medina um, to criticise the Saudi state and to use the kind of religious standing that they gain from their qualifications um, to engage in those kinds of projects which really work against the interests of the Saudi state um, or that they use them for, for other purposes that, that, um, that take things in different directions. So that, that would be my answer, is that, um, that yes, these kinds of projects have, have fed into the flourishing of Salafism, um, but that the ways in which that has played out have been beyond the control of the Saudi state, um, and that, the, that it has given rise to, a, to an immense amount of diversity and an immense amount of, um, of, of conflict. So to the extent that this was originally conceived as sort of a long-term war of ideas, right, a, a long-term attempt to change uh, transnational and, and global practice of Islam, uh, what kind of grade would you give it? Has this been a good investment by the Saudis? Okay. Um, I mean, to grade it, I am... Um... Well, I know the British have, uh, have a very tough grade, so... Right, sure. Um, I mean, again, I think um, to some extent one has to come back to the to the issue that it's extremely difficult to get a very clear sense um, of how um, what proportions of graduates have gone into different kinds of pursuits afterwards and, and how this has played out in that very exact sense. Right. Um, but I think what is clear is that um, this kind of project has um, has to some extent been kind of instrumentalised by those who've passed through it. So the kinds of resources that are being sunk into it. Um, with a view to promoting this particular religious mission um, also end up being used for other purposes. So um, students who would save their stipends in order to start a business afterwards, for example, um, or to, to send back to family in their home countries. Um, so it's certainly the case that this kind of project has been open to um, uh, uses that kind of divert it from its um, original religious mission to some extent. Um, but then I think... That, in terms of thinking about the efficacy of this, um, perhaps the one lesson that I would take away from, from the research um, is that no matter whether or it's feeding into um, kind of the, the promotion of Salafism, um, that that project in itself doesn't necessarily serve the interests of the Saudi state um, in ways that the project was, was presumably intended to in the first place. All right. Well, thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Michael Farker, uh, the King's College in London, and author of uh, the new book, Circuits of Faith, Migration, Education, the Wahhabi Mission. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you.